Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right. Good evening, everyone. Amen. How many of you guys are ready for Christmas? All right, me too. It's almost here. So glad for that. All right, let's go to John 20. I I don't know what that had to do with anything. I'm just, you're already thinking the 4th of July. (laughs) That's a man who plans ahead. (laughs) With April, I'm happy in the wintertime. If you need some holiday cheer, come see me. I love it. I love the wintertime. I love the uh, holiday season. Let's uh, let's go to John 20 and, and look at a conversation that Jesus has with Mary Magdalene. And we'll look at one uh, verses 1 through 18, and we'll focus specifically on uh, verses 11 through 18. And we want to know that first part just for the background. This has to do with the empty tomb and the resurrection. So let's read uh, verse 1 and following. Anybody like to read for us? All right, I'll read it. If I have to, you'll read it. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm happy. Go ahead. Read it loud and clear so everybody can hear verses. Uh, why don't you read verses 1 through 10? Okay. Okay, uh, I'd like to take over from there, 11 through 18. All right, I think that was a hand, Ryan. Was that a hand? All right, thank you.
All right, thank you. Anybody know the purpose of John, why he's written the gospel? Sorry? The question is, does anybody know uh, why John wrote the gospel of John? He says, he says why he wrote it. Okay, to make a good, clear statement about it. Anyone else? Okay, so that we may believe. That's in, uh, that's in this chapter, verse uh, 31, if you want to go to the end of it. Uh, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What are the these things? What are these? But these are written. What's the these? Okay. The signs, the events, the teachings, everything found in the book of John. And here's a, a little trick for for reading any book. That not every book says it as clearly as this. There are some that do and there's some that don't. But um, one thing we want to look for, does the author of any given work tell us why he's written? And when you have a plain statement like that, you know that all of these stories are gathered so that we can believe in Jesus. That's what it's about. That's the main theme that runs through this whole book. And so as we look at each of the stories, somewhere in there is going to be uh, part of, it's going to be part of John's intention that out of this story, once again, we should believe in Jesus. And believe means more than just give mental assent to. It means that we're going to put our lives in his hands, to put our full weight on him, to to lean into him. Um, it's interesting, some of the different metaphors. I'll have to share with you sometime. I'm reading this book, and it's talking about um, when you translate into cultures, different cultures and different languages, they don't, they don't have the same metaphors or the same um, figures of speech that we do. So believe in doesn't make sense to some people, but uh, like I heard somewhere in the South Pacific that the way they translate John 3.16 is put your full weight on him. So, uh, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever puts their full weight on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That was, that was their, their word picture for believing, is to put your full weight on. And that's what we, we're, we're called to do here. And so, there's, there's different pictures of that. Sometimes the idea of believe can be really uh, abstract and nebulous. We can't really pin it down. What exactly does believe mean? Does it mean believe for greater things? Well, yes. Does it mean to trust when we're not seeing greater things at the moment? Yes. There's a whole range of meaning that's involved in believing in Jesus, but it really it really means to bet our life on him. We're betting not only our life, but our eternity on him. And so he's calling us to that, and there's, there's good reason for it. And so John here is writing as an eyewitness to these things, and he's given us testimony. I think probably most of us in this room have this issue settled, but... I bet probably all of us in this room have moments when we struggle in our faith. And so we need to come and be reaffirmed in these things and hear the stories again. John's told these stories again and again. The people he's told them to have heard it again and again. We who have grown up in church have heard them over and over and over again. And it becomes part of the, the fabric of who we are. 
And so I want to just challenge us tonight to keep that in our mind as we read through the Gospel of John. Not only tonight, but any time that John's main concern for us is that we are believing in Jesus. Amen? So um, looking at this, we have some people in this story that we just read. Have you noticed the people that are there? Who's there? Okay, we have Mary Magdalene. Okay. Who else? Okay, Peter and John. Whoops. That didn't do what I thought it would do. Okay, Peter and John. And who else? Well, we might call them people. Their person, their personalities anyway. Two angels. Okay. Good. Jesus. <laughs> the point of the story, right? All of uh all of these people are involved in this particular story. What can we say about Mary Magdalene? Anybody know anything about Mary Magdalene? There's lots of Marys in the New Testament, lots. So sometimes we tend to glom them all together as one person, but they're not. Mary Magdalene is different from Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Clopas' wife, and the other Marys. Mary, the sister of Martha, they're, they're all different Marys. And they're, they're all named after one matriarch in Israel who is, anybody know? Miriam. Who's who? The sister of somebody famous. Moses and Aaron, both. Okay, good. So this is, uh, this is one of the reasons we have lots of Marys. We have, we have lots of Simons. Lots of Johns. Um, that's because people like to use hero names, just like we do, right? I mean, sometimes we name for less important reasons. All right, so what, what do we know about Mary Magdalene? Well, John only names her um, in the story we talked about last week, which was the story of the cross, right? There's a group of women standing around the cross, and um, Mary... The Lord's sister is there. Uh, excuse me, Mary, <laughs> the Lord's mother is there. I always get ahead of myself. The sister of Mary, whoever she is, her, she's not named, and I think we know who it is maybe. And then another Mary, and then Mary Magdalene. Okay. Do you know that's the first time John mentions her? Okay. Anybody know of any other place? There's a passage in Luke that mentions her. And um, in Luke, it says, in Luke chapter 8, verse, uh, verse 2, it says um, that she was there in the Galilean ministry as a woman uh, from whom seven demons were cast out. She's mentioned only in relationship to the crucifixion of the tomb other than that. So Luke 8, 1 through 3 says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some women who had, uh, who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and uh, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others, these women, were helping to support them out of their own means. And we know that her surname, Magdalene, indicates that she probably came from Magdala, on the northwest shore of the Lake of Galilee, about seven miles southwest of Capernaum, for whatever that's worth. We know 
She's from the Galilee region. She's probably got a Galilean accent, just like all of them. And she's some, for some reason, in Luke, he mentions her early on, but in the other stories, she just shows up right around the time of the cross. And that, that really says something to us. And I want to I wanna say something about the Gospels related to this, and uh, I'd like you to think about it. And uh, I want to ask you to suspend your judgment and not get mad at me right away till you think about it. Uh, but just carefully consider this, otherwise the point can be lost. And I think that would be a shame for the point to be lost because here, what I think I want to say is an important point when you talk to people who are non-believers about the legitimacy of the gospel. You, you know what I mean by that? That when we're talking to people about how the gospels are true accounts, uh, we want to come with some ammunition if they're not believers, okay? Some people call those into questions, like they're just stories that were written later on and uh, one of the fine facts about the Gospels is that they say things about Jesus and his ministry that are true to the times and true to the place, okay? Uh, one of the theories that's been put out there by skeptics of Christianity is that the Gospels were written much later and in a faraway place. And if that were the case, those people wouldn't know anything. I mean, they didn't have Google. They wouldn't have known anything about the times or the place where the Gospels were written, Okay? That's one objection, and, and it's met. One of the fine objections that's met uh, that one of my professors in Bible college told us, he, uh, Wave Nunley, he said that the fact that the villages are on the north end of the Sea of Galilee is really important because those fishing villages on the north end of the Sea of Galilee is where the hot springs come up and the fish like to go there. So the fact that there's fishing villages right there and not on the other sides says something about the fact that whoever wrote these books, and we, we think we know who they are, knew what they were talking about. They were talking about real places, real events, um, all of that. So here's what I want to say. When we're introduced to Mary Magdalene in John's gospel, it's not until the crucifixion story. And what this says uh, to the modern re re reader is that this isn't a typical biography. Okay, If it were a good biography or even a good fiction, it would tell us all the background stories. Like it would give us some background details, like who is this Mary Magdalene? We need to know a bunch of details. John doesn't even waste time with that. He just says she was there. Okay, uh, A good fiction, C.S. Lewis points this out. Uh, I think in Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Christ, he may point this out, that these are not great biographies their accounts, their gospel tracts that tell us actual accounts of what's taken place. And that's really, really important. That these writers are not trying to write historical fiction. They're trying to tell us what happened and what we should do as a result of it. And so for that reason, we wouldn't think this is, when we read our gospel, we wouldn't think, man, this is really great science fiction. It's not. It's terrible science fiction. It's not even good biography. But it is great gospel, and it's great because it's life-changing, and it brings us into an encounter with Christ. So, so don't be mad at me if I say it's not good biography. We're not trying to get biographies out of the gospels. We're trying to hear a story about what Jesus has done. If it would have been a great biography, we would have heard about Jesus' childhood and all of his growing up years and everything else. And what we get in the gospel of John is that probably 40 to 45% of the Gospel of John takes place from the upper room to the resurrection. That's significant. 
And so we're not dealing with biographies here. We're dealing with something else altogether. And I would suggest to you it's far more profound and far more of eternal consequence. And so I'm not saying the Gospels aren't good writing. It's the best kind of writing because it really changes lives and it changes the world. But if you're trying to make it it fiction, it doesn't do that. It's not polished enough to be fiction. It's good because it's true. It's good because it's life-giving. And it's good in this particular way is that it caused us to believe in Jesus. And so I think we all agree that the Gospel of John is excellent when it comes to giving us an account of Jesus' saving work. Would you agree? Uh, I hope so, because God's watching. Yeah. Sure. Yes, I'm going to come to that. Yeah, I'm going to come to that in just a few moments. I know we're all curious about that because it's, yeah, so we will come to that. First, yeah, go ahead. It's speculation. There's not proof of that. The only Usually when it says Mary Magdalene, it, it mentions her whole name. And so because her whole name's not mentioned there, it's thought that's probably another Mary. Mary's would have been a very common name. And so um, it doesn't change the beauty of the story. I think that there, the fact that there's others that are um, showing Jesus that kind of honor uh, is beautiful too. So, But that is, that is a good question because sometimes... Uh, we may we may think about things like that. All right, first thing I want to mention, this is the first part of the outline we dealt with, and this is the part that Lorene read, is verse 1 through 10. Let's call it the discovery of an empty tomb. The discovery of an empty, of an empty tomb. Okay, So that's verses 1 through 10, and that would be the first part of our outline. And I'd like you to notice the first thing that says, early on the first day of the week. What day are we talking about? What is it? Sunday, right? First day of the week, Sunday. I always think in my mental calendar, the first day of the week is always Monday because that's the first day you got to go to work or school or whatever. Anybody else get hung up on that a little bit? But in actuality, the first day of the week, in God's estimation, is Sunday. Okay? And it's kind of an interesting thing because that's the day that uh, we celebrate together the resurrection of Christ. And so when we wonder why why would why do we have church on Sunday and, and not follow Old Testament custom and celebrate Sabbath on Saturday, you can celebrate Sabbath. But the church, the Jewish church, thought, man, it's we're we're celebrating the resurrection. Something has happened that's changed everything. It's changed all of history. And so we're gonna celebrate that every week. Every week is gonna be a commemoration of Resurrection Sunday. So that's why we celebrate and worship on Sunday as we're, we're celebrating the Lord's resurrection. And yes. Yes, some continued to... Yeah, they continued. Some of them continued to observe Sabbath, and then they did worship together on Sunday. But then I get the impression from Colossians that that later became up to the individual whether they continue to follow Sabbath. So, but I was going to say here that when it comes to Sunday, um, you know, in other languages, they're at an advantage over us 
Anybody know what the Spanish word for Sunday is? What is it? Domingo, which means what? Lord's Day. Domino is Lord. In Greek, it's uh, Kyriaki, which is Lord's Day. Um, we follow the Germanic calendars, and so we, every time we talk about the day, we're honoring or acknowledging. I hate to say honoring because I don't think that's our heart, but we're acknowledging some kind of a celestial being. So Sunday is in honor of the sun, Monday, the moon. You can see a little more clearly in the Spanish, which what's Monday in Spanish? Lunas. It's moon day. That's where we, that was where that comes from. Tuesday, uh, from Tui, which is a, um, an English or Germanized form of Mars in, um, is it Martes in Spanish? And then Wednesday is, and if you say it right, you can hear it, Odin's Day, Wednesday. It's spelled weird, isn't it? And then Thursday is, anybody know what God is acknowledged on Thursday? Thor, Thor's Day. And then Friday's Freya's Day, Saturday's Saturn's Day, and then Sunday. And so I don't know what we're thinking in English. We should have changed all that when we really got converted out of our paganism. But we didn't. Uh, other languages have an advantage. But I know, I know this is kind of outside of the purview of what we're talking about. But I wanted to bring up the fact that Jesus rising on the first day of the week changed everything. It really did. And so they go on the first day of the week, which is... Sunday. Okay, I'd like you to look here at um, our text. Let's see if we can bring that up again here. Look at uh, verses 1 through 10 there with me. And I want, I'd like you to find uh, how many times it shows the word or some form of the word see. Can you do that with me? Let's look through that. Some form of the word see. Okay, where's the first one? Okay, and that's what? Verse verse 1, okay, then? Okay. Who 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 did the who did the action here? It's in it's back in verse 4. Peter and what did he do? He bent over and looked in. Okay, and then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And then what? He saw. Okay, look at verse seven and eight. Uh, let's go on through the rest of that section there. Do you see any more forms of of C? What's that? Okay, who's the he there? Yeah, it doesn't say his name, does it? But it says the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he he saw and believed. Okay? If you look on down, you'll see a few more of these. Verse 12, uh, Mary saw two angels, one at the head and the foot, and then they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord, she said, and I don't know where to put him. This she turned around and what? Verse 14. Saw Jesus. 
standing there, but she didn't recognize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, uh, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I'll get him. And um, she turned around when he called her name and said, Rabboni, just teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me. We'll get to that in just a moment. And he said, I want you to go and tell the, tell the boys what's going on. All right, so we have four different times in just that first section where sight is referred to Mary, John, Peter, and then John again. And it shows, I think, a disconnect between seeing and believing. Sometimes we think that if we'll see, then we'll believe. But that's not always the case. Like, I think, man, if somebody would just see a miracle, they'll believe. The Pharisees saw miracles done by Jesus. They didn't believe Think about the king that stretched out his arm and uh, he was rebuked and his arm withered. And then he's like, prophet, pray for me. And the prophet prays for him and his arms restored. He didn't believe. He wanted to kill the guy afterwards. So seeing is not always believing. There's something that here that has to do with it going beyond our visual eyesight and being a part of our spiritual perception. Maybe. John looked, and this is the word uh, here in Greek, if it matters to you, blepo. I just want to show you that these are different, okay? This is blepo, and it means to see, and it's frequently used in the sense of becoming aware or taking notice of something, like you see it and take a little bit of notice of it, but maybe it doesn't go beyond that perception. Have you ever seen something and then you did a double double take. You noticed it, but you didn't really fully take in what was happening at that particular moment. Okay. That's the kind of thing that is taking place here. Mary Mary saw and Jesus looked. So Mary first shows up at the tomb. She sees the stone rolled away. Uh, she must have looked inside or at least assumed when she saw the, the stone gone that somebody had been uh, messing around the grave of Jesus, that they they took the body of Jesus. They took him away. I don't know who the they are because she never really says, but what are some possibilities here when you think about somebody taking the body of Jesus? Who might have done that? Okay, the soldiers. Who else? Pharisees. What's What were the religious leader? What was their theory? 
Yeah. Yeah, make him into a hero by pretending that there was a resurrection. Yeah. So they they uh that was one particular theory. Um high priest, grave robbers maybe. All right. So different ideas about that. So Mary saw, John looked. Both of these are the same uh, word. They, they just noticed something. What was it that John's, John looked at here? Okay, he looked in and he saw that cloth. He bent over and he looked at the strips of linen that were lying there, but he didn't go in. Not yet. He's getting ready to. Okay, so that's kind of interesting to me. They saw and looked, and the reason that John used these different words, sometimes when writers do that, they're just doing something stylistically. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like, I, I want to make the case when we talk about uh, Jesus' question to John, do you love me, that he says, uh, agape, agape, phileo. Okay? And a lot's been made, a lot of ink has been spilled on that. Um, I really think he's using it stylistically as a synonym. Like, do you love me? Do you love me? Like, if we would say that, do you really care? It'd be something like that. Um, and there's a lot of uh, great Bible scholars that think that's all that John is doing there. He's not, as he's reporting the words of Jesus, he's not trying in any way to change the last meaning. But uh, I think here it's significant that three different times there's three different words that are used. All right, so, uh-oh, well, that's out of commission. The next one is Peter saw the strips of linen lying there, and this time it's a, a word, theonomai, okay, theonomai. Let's see if we can, if we can get this here. This is Peter. Ah. Sorry, it's Theomai. Okay, that's an M. And that one uh, means this, to observe something with continuity and attention. So this is more like when your, your mom or dad or you said to your kids, pay attention to something. So it says Peter, Peter saw the strips of linen that were there, and this is to observe something with continuity and attention. Often the implication is that what's being observed is something unusual. And so he's seen something, and uh, he's, he's focused on it. He's looking at it and observing something there. And then it says, John saw uh, again, and this is verse 9, I think. 8, yep, thank you. Verse 8, he saw... And believed. And this time, the most general word for seeing is used. I don't know why this is. It's uh, a word, O-R-A-O. Okay? We'll put it right over here. O-R-A-O. And uh, this word just simply means to see something, to have sight, to seeing. And we know often in John that he likes to use uh, word pictures. He likes to use the healing of the blind man as a sign for how many people walk around spiritually blind and they need to have their eyes open. So when he says it on that base level, I have to think, especially in light of what John does, that he means it in a metaphorical sense too, that he he's really perceiving, he's really seeing. It's not just looking on the surface of things. Suddenly the light bulb goes off and John believes. He believes, okay? Uh, and I think that's significant. 
John's gospel, and I'd like to mention this. I kind of labor this as a hobby horse of mine, and the reason is because so often in my life I've heard that we don't need to base faith on evidence whatsoever. And I want to suggest to you that I don't know how you could get around it. There's always some kind of evidence that God has given us of his presence. And so anytime there's faith, it's always a response to some kind of evidence. Faith comes by what? Here and, and hearing by. So the word of God is the evidence in that particular case. The word of God comes. There's something maybe that sparks on the inside of us that says, yes, that's true. Or maybe we've heard it from a reliable source. And we say, if they believe it, they're a person of credibility. And so the evidence that we have is based on perhaps the, the witness to us, their track record. In my case, it was my mom. My mom didn't lie to me. She was telling me the truth. And uh, for these disciples, they saw. And also there's the witness of the word. You know, I think it's in one of the epistles of Peter where he says something like, we have the, we've, we've seen this with our own eyes, but we have an even more sure word of prophecy. That even beyond having seen with our eyes, that prophecy has shown us that these things ought to have taken place. And so we trust and believe, not without evidence. There's varied kinds of evidence, but we base it on reasons. I've never met somebody that believed that didn't believe because they had a reason. And I've heard a lot of people say, people from great doubters to great Christians say, faith is the opposite of fact. It's not. Sometimes it stands in the... It stands in opposition to facts as they are now. For example, it looks like this world is under the dominion of darkness, doesn't it? But the reality is that this is the that God is still in control and that He's ruling and that that kingdom will become, will fade and become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And so what we're seeing is a momentary transient fact that will move out of the way and be replaced by something greater. But we don't, we don't believe just in opposition to facts. We believe because of other facts that are more significant than those. We trust God in a moment when we're, we're struggling or battling. Maybe we're going through a particular uh, a difficult time, a sadness. Uh, maybe it's a seasonal affective disorder. You know, we're going through something like that. And we just don't, we're not feeling it right now. Okay. So the facts are we don't feel very good, okay? The faith says to us that we have, God's been good to me through this before. So I'm going to believe him again. And so we're not believing in the opposition of facts. There are facts that and reasons that we have for believing. It might be at times that the reasons we believe are an internal witness of the Spirit. It might be the witness of others. It might be an experience you've had with God. But the reasons... They grow with time and they strengthen our faith. And the more track record you have with God, the more you can look back and have reasons to continue to believe and be strong. Anybody feel like you've got more reasons to believe now than you did when you first started? Come on, isn't that true of all of us? Like if you've walked with God, you've got more reasons to trust now than when you first started. You might have had a, a very limited faith and you believe because Miss Pat, your Sunday school teacher, told you the gospel and you believed her. And you put your faith in the gospel because... Miss Pat wouldn't lie to you, and uh, maybe she would have lied to you, but you didn't know it. You trusted, and because God is true, he started to walk with you down this road, and your faith was built, and now there's more and more reason to trust 
in Jesus. Well, uh, faith in God is only sometimes faith against facts, but those are changing facts. God's uh, reasons are always good. What's the significance of the strips of linen and the cloth that's lying there? Peter was fixated on that. I don't think he could figure out what that is supposed to mean. That's my interpretation. I don't know that. He'll fix that with us when we get to heaven if I'm wrong. But he's fixated on it, and it doesn't say Peter looked and believed. It says he looked at that, and he was kind of captivated by the fact that there's grave clothes and the face mask laying there, and nobody. That's the important part. Thank you. Okay, he sees that, sees nobody. Okay, but it doesn't say that in John. We're just dealing with John. It does say that, I think, in some of the others, the other Gospels. That's exactly what I was thinking, and that's where I was going with this, is that the reason why that's so peculiar is if somebody stole the body, they would have taken it wrapped. So the fact that it's there says the body's no longer wrapped. And so maybe Peter's like, that's peculiar. And John is like, you know what? I'm starting to believe that Jesus is risen. And so something changes there. And I, I think it's interesting <laughs> when we, we look at this that we can see three responses. We can see um, that seeing, there's one who's seen but not understanding. And I'm, I'm going to say that's Peter. This isn't a blast on Peter. Peter often is the boldest and the first one to get out, and he's courageous, and he'll do, um, he'll do amazing things out of boldness for God. But he's not always the quickest. Sometimes he's the first one to respond, but he's not always the quickest one to understand. Then we have uh, seeing and believing. Then we have Mary. We already read it, so I'm not spoiling the fun for you. We have meeting and believing. She meets him and believes. It shows us that seeing is not always believing. And this is a big theme in John. Sometimes people lack the knowledge to interpret the events right. Sometimes people's minds are clouded by sin. Sometimes they refuse to believe. Uh, here it's that they didn't connect the promises that Jesus made with the events that happened. All right. So what does it mean that John saw and believed in verse 9? Well, for our purposes, it means that John believed before seeing Jesus. Are you with me? Okay, it says he saw and believed. Look at verse 9 again. It says, finally, the other disciple, we're assuming this is John because that's how John refers to himself, uh, who reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. Okay, he saw and believed. Um, what did he see? He didn't see Jesus. He saw the absence of Jesus in the place where Jesus' body should have been, and he believed. And I think it's, it's wonderful that uh, in some cases, some people require a lot of evidence, and when they're sincere, I don't think, I have to be honest with you, I don't think that God is mad at people who require a lot of evidence as long as they're sincerely seeking him. He, I think he honors that. I think there's a point at which he says, 
you know, I've told you, I've given you enough. You need to believe what I've given you. Uh, and But a lot of times what people are doing is they're putting out a smoke screen like, you've given me this much, and they're kind of leading this on with a carrot saying, I, I need a little more. I need a little more. Like, like the religious leaders, sh- right after Jesus does a miracle, they said, show us a sign that we may believe. Yeah. Well, he had just done a miracle, and they want him to do another one. And that's, I think, a, a problem. But when there's a sincere heart, the Israelites... Yep, and God's providing for them food and water, and and they're like, they tested the Lord and uh, required of him giving them something more beyond that. I I don't know the answer to that. Or he could have been raised and then folded it. That would, that's kind of a nice picture, isn't it? I mean, you could picture it. However, I don't, I don't think it's significant to the story, but the fact that the clothes are there is, I think, what's important. So the clothes are there. He may have folded them. He may have passed right through them as though they didn't matter, and they're laying there as if there had been a body, uh, but there wasn't one anymore. That would have been a definite reason for John to believe. That would have been a definite reason for Peter to marvel. It looks like there should be a body in there, but there's not. So if that's the case, that'd be wonderful too. Um, but John saw and believed. And you contrast this with chapter 20. Look at verse 25 down there if you're still in your Bibles. This is later on. We didn't read this portion yet. This has to do with somebody named Thomas. What's his nickname? Doubting. (laughs) Doubting Thomas. All right. And the reason he gets that nickname is not because he ultimately is a doubter, but because he wants a little more evidence about this. Now, Thomas, also called Didymus, uh, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where his nails were and put my hand into a side, I will not believe. Well, Jesus shows up, verse 27, he says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting, believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who've not seen me and yet have believed. That's all of us. We haven't seen him physically in that way. We didn't get to walk with him in his fleshly life, um, but we've believed. And so there's a blessing that goes with that. And so I think this is a nice natural contrast to what happens with John. John sees not Jesus, but a circumstance, and he believes at that moment. Thomas takes a little bit more. And I, I think there's some beauty in that uh, God, God, God knows how to meet us where we are. Um, but it's necessary for some to believe without seeing, and that's, that's like us. We have to hear the testimony and decide whether we're going to follow him or not. Um, verse 9 says that they still not under, did not understand from the Scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Who's the they there? Okay, but specifically in this context, who do we have so far? Peter and John. Can, how can we say John didn't believe? Well... Let's just be really clear here. They didn't understand from the Scriptures. 
Even John, who saw something here and believed, he didn't understand it from the Scriptures the way that he probably should have. But he did, in response to the evidence, uh, believe in Jesus. So it's both Peter and John, and they go back to where the other guys are. There's no comment on Peter's belief at this point, but I don't want you to feel bad for these disciples because they get it, right? They get it in time. In fact, the fact that we're reading a gospel from John shows that he got it. All right, let's quickly go. Um, let's quickly go to the second part here. I'm going to turn this off because my computer's not moving. Um, the second part is the discovery of a risen Savior. What was the first part? Discovery of what? The empty tomb. Okay. Now we're looking at the discovery of a risen Savior. Mary goes and gets Peter and says, Somebody, somebody's done something at the grave of Jesus. Come back. Peter runs, huffing and puffing. John outruns him and gets there. This has been... Uh, reason that many think that John was younger than Peter, plus he lived to be really, really old. Um, And so they get there, they have this encounter that we've just talked about where they look in, Peter's fixated, John uh, sees and believes. They didn't believe because of the scripture, because they didn't understand the scripture said these things had to happen. And then they go back to where they were staying. And now we have Mary still left there. Mary saw the stone rolled away, and so she had made the assumption that Jesus had been taken. So let's look at those verses now, starting at verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. The other guy has left. She's still there. She's crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. Once again, look into this. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, this look into is more of the just to see, to see into the tomb. There's not. Uh, any more depth to that word than that. She looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Okay? And here's what amazes me about this, is that without missing a beat, Mary Magdalene continues in her grief. Don't you think if you saw something like two angels, I don't think, I don't, I don't think angels, all angels have wings. That's my personal opinion. But they're sitting there. They're glowing in white. Um, and they ask her a question, and she simply responds to it. And it's like it doesn't really take the fact that there's something glorious that's right there happening. Okay? I, that's how I see it. I'm surprised a little bit that not more is made of that. Um, and they say to her, uh, woman, why are you crying? Uh, why are you crying? Verse 13, they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Um, so who are the they again? We don't know. We don't know who the they are that's taken them away. Grave robbers, the religious leaders that... She surely wouldn't think the disciples did it, but somebody has, in her mind, taken the body of Jesus away. And um, they've taken my Lord, and I don't know what they've, what, what they, where they've put him. At this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there. She saw Jesus standing there, and uh, but didn't realize 
that it was Jesus. Okay. Why didn't she realize it was Jesus? Okay. Focus on. Okay, and that's true. I don't know if that's what happened, but that's true. He probably could. Vincent, what'd you say? She wouldn't see anything else. Somebody else? It's dark, still a little bit dark. Yeah. Okay. Verse 17. Okay, what's verse 17 here? Okay, maybe there's something that's happening with him in his transcorporal body where I believe, and I think you could back this up with Scripture, it says that we don't know what we shall be, but we know that we'll be like him. So whatever Jesus' body was like, it wasn't just the same flesh and blood body that he had before. It was the transcorporal resurrection body that you and I will have when we're raised from the dead. Not exactly like his, but in with his as the um, what's the what's the, prototype prototype that's the word I was looking for but it was hovering above me his his body is the prototype for what our resurrection bodies will be like I think that's really magnificent so we're seeing this is why he's the firstborn from among the dead he's the he's the first fruits of the resurrection is that he shows us what that body is going to look like. So we've got some ideas out here. We've got maybe Mary is crying a lot. Maybe her eyes are filled with tears and she can't recognize him. Um, some think that Jesus' resurrected body shown glory in a new way and uh, that this is how the Father kept the two on the road from uh, road to Emmaus from recognizing Jesus. Remember, they were walking with the resurrected Christ, and he's telling them stories. He's showing how the whole Testament is pointing forward to him. And they don't recognize him until something happens. What? He prays and breaks the bread. And they their eyes are open and they recognize him. It seems that that somehow the fathers put a cloud over there being able to recognize him so that they could hear the whole story without being distracted by the excitement that Jesus is with them. And so what would it have been like to hear Jesus expound the scriptures and show how all of that is really pointing forward to him? I mean, it's wonderful. Um, some think that maybe she was looking for, and, and this makes sense, somewhat, uh, that he was look, she was looking for someone who was living, wasn't living, and so she didn't recognize a person who was living there as being possibly the Lord. Like, if you're looking for somebody who's dead and somebody's standing next to you, you're not going to think it's that person, Right? And it could be a mixture of any of these, really. I don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us, so we're, we're speculating at this point. But the fact is, she doesn't recognize Jesus. She doesn't recognize him. And he's, what's that? Or his voice. Well, at this point, he hadn't said anything, I don't think. When he does say something, then the lights go on. So I think maybe that might be a, a help to her. 
Oh, he does. I'm sorry, John, you're right. Verse 15, look, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? You're right, John. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you carry him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, it's in the saying of her name that suddenly she recognizes this, that somebody there knows her. And she turned toward him and she cried out in Aramaic, the word that stands behind this is something like the Hebrew dialect. So it could be Aramaic or it could be Hebrew. Uh, Rabboni, okay, which means teacher. It means teacher. And so she comes to terms with the fact that there is Jesus. And what's the first instinct that she has? To wrap her arms around him, right? To hug him. Lord, you're alive. And so she goes to wrap uh, her arms around him. So he says something to her in response to that. And uh, it brings up the question, what's the significance of having not ascended to the Father? And there are several ways scholars have tried to deal with this, um, that he's not ascended to the Father yet. And uh, one of them is that, you know, that uh, somehow that would, that human contact would somehow taint this perfect new being, I, I don't think that that's the case. It could be. Uh, a lot of ink has been spilled on this. I think the easiest thing to suggest now is that this is not the time to cling to him. He has to ascend to the Father. Instead, she needs to go and tell the disciples uh, that he's risen. So she says, don't, um, don't hold on to me. How does it say it here in the NIV? What is it? Do not hold on to me. If you have the KJV, has touch me not. So that suggests to me that he doesn't want to be touched at all. Um, other translations, the ESV says, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. Uh, NAS, New American Standard Bible says, stop clinging to me. New Revised Standard Version says, don't hold on to me. Uh, New English translation, do not touch me. And here's the interesting thing about this is that the word hold on to or Touch here can mean uh, can mean two different things, and so we have to make an interpretive decision here. And our translations often do that for us. And the first one that's a possibility is to touch, to take hold of, or to hold. Okay, this is from uh, uh, the Greek lexicon: to touch, to take hold of, or to hold. Okay, so that's that's one that could suggest to take in hand and to hold, or it could suggest something as simple as this, right? But I don't know that that's what's in mind here. The second is to cling to. To cling to. Loanida's um, dictionary says that this Greek word means to hold on to an object, to retain in the hand, to seize. So it would suggest to me that what Jesus is saying is don't cling to me. Now is not the time. I have other things to do. I have to ascend to the Father, and I need you to go tell the disciples. D.A. Carson in his commentary says, the thought then might be paraphrased this way, stop touching me for, or stop holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. In other words, I'm not yet in the ascended state, so you don't have to hang on to me as if I were about to disappear permanently. You're not going to lose me in this moment, okay? Because they knew that Jesus had emphasized throughout the Gospel of John, especially in the upper room, that he was going to ascend to the Father. They knew that. He made that very clear. And if you look at in the, uh, 
in the in the concordance, you see uh, many many verses throughout that upper room experience saying that I have to leave you, I have to go to the Father, I have to go away. It's needful that I go away. I'm going away. I'll be with you for a short time, and then you'll see me no more. Things like that, over and over and over again. I would be surprised if there's not uh, if there's not 15 verses in that upper room time that deal with Jesus going away. So that's a very important point that he's got to go away. And so uh, Carson thinks maybe the point here is don't think that you have to hold on to me now. I'm going to be with you, but now go and tell the boys. uh, And by that, I mean the brothers. He doesn't mean his literal brothers. He means uh, the disciples. Go and tell them that I have to do something. I have to send to my father and to your father. So this is a time of joy and sharing good news, not for clutching me as if uh, I were some jealously guarded private dream come true. Stop clinging to me, but go and tell my disciples that I'm in the process of ascending my father into your father. And so this suggests to me there's further action on the part of Jesus. In light of the promises to go and to send another comforter, he can't be held here. The disciples need to know that he's risen and the fulfillment of his promises are still to come. In John seven thirty three, that's the first place we see it. Jesus says to the Pharisees, um, he said, I'm with you only for a short time, then I'm going to the one who sent me. And then the upper room, he says several things in John 13 through 16. Uh, and I'll just read one of those, 16, 4 through 7. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you'll remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asked me, where am I going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I go away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Who's the advocate? Okay, so he's telling them he's got to go and he's going to send someone in his place. And this, these kind of statements are happening over and over again in uh, those that uh, chapter 13 through 16. When would the upper room have taken place in correspondence to where we are now in the story? We're here on Sunday. Upper room? Thursday. Thursday. Okay. And some there's some other arrangements of that that may suggest Wednesday, but... Whenever the upper room was, it, it's within less than a week that they heard him expound for a long time in an intimate setting that he would have to go away. And so it makes sense that in this moment, now he says, don't cling to me. I still have to ascend to the Father. There's still a process. You don't have to hold on to me. This is all part of the plan. And so his return to life proved here his relationship to the Father. It also proved his rightful place at the center of human confidence. And it revived hope in the promises that he'd made about the Father, the Spirit, and life. Why uh, my God and your God? Why does he say that? If you'll bear with me for just a couple minutes, I think we can wrap this up. This, is a, this statement, it sounds here like Jesus saying, there's me and then there's my God out there. And uh, I want to just caution us here that we we be careful about how we understand this. This is not Jesus in any way denying his divinity or his his godhood, because that's said clearly in other places. This statement doesn't throw into question 
the divinity of Jesus because he calls the Father his Father and God his God. All through the Gospel of John, Jesus shows us that he's the one-of-the-kind Son sharing the divine nature with the Father. Uh, the Word, it says in John 1.1, was with God, and the Word was God, right? Okay, And, and then we have um, Jesus here speaking from his shared humanity as the second Adam. Are you with me on that? That he's in, in his shared humanity, he's saying, he's my father, and now he's your father. He's my God, and he's your God. And so what he's doing is sharing from the point of uh, his humanity, he's emphasizing what is shared between us and him, not what is different. We have what is different in other places. John one eighteen, for example, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. Okay, so this isn't in any way Jesus saying to Mary, um, I'm not God, but I'm going to ascend to him. He's sharing in humanity, saying, go tell the boys... It's all right if I talk about the disciples that way. The boys, go tell them that I, ne- I still need to ascend to my Father and their Father, my God and their God. This is an emphasis in their shared relationship. I really believe that we have relationship. God is our Father by virtue of Jesus, that when we're enfranchised into Jesus, that means he brings us into a shared sonship. And if you're a lady, that means daughtership. For you, and uh, what it means is that what we, what He is in terms of His standing with God, we share in that because we're in Him. So that's really significant. Is that He's saying, "I'm going to my Father and your Father, my God and your God." Now, there's another difference which should be pointed out. That's the difference between meeting a fact and meeting a person. And this really draws the whole thing to a close. You can clearly see. This in the difference between meeting an empty tomb and meeting the resurrected Lord. That's two different things, isn't it? Just knowing that there's an empty tomb is a wonderful truth. It's marvelous. Meeting the person of the resurrected Lord, that's world-changing. Okay, To go to an empty tomb is one. You can still go to empty tomb today. We don't know if we know for sure if there's a couple different sites that are possibilities of the tomb. Um, wherever it is, Jesus isn't there. That's wonderful. It's another thing to have an encounter with the living Christ. And that's what he's called each one of us to. And you can clearly see this difference between those two things. One is a marvelous discovery. The second turns the world upside down. We don't get the privilege of being one of those who walked with Jesus in his earthly life. Um, but we have the privilege of walking with him in the day-to-day, having him as our high priest. We can't be there through that weekend from Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday in person, but we can meet the resurrected Lord. And we are those who believe by testimony, those who, Jesus says later, have not seen and yet believe. And he's worth believing in as the resurrected Lord. Here is more evidence that John gives us. Remember that book that came out in the 70s, uh, Josh McDowell? Evidence that demands a verdict. Okay, I don't know if you've ever read that or not, but he gives lots of evidence. Uh, here, John, is he's, he's one of the first writers that gives us evidence that demands a verdict. The verdict is Jesus is risen and he deserves our belief. So let's put our belief in him. Hey, thanks for your gracious attention and loaning me four minutes tonight. Stand with me if you would.
I talked fast. He might not have thought it was fast, but it was fast for me. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a perfect representative to the Father, that uh, we get brought into your sonship um, by virtue of your sacrificial and atoning death. Uh, everything you offered us is to bring us into the new humanity, that we die to ourselves and we live for Christ. And we let you live through us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to be those kind who are ready to believe, that we can see and believe, or even having not seen, we believe because we we know uh, who you are. And I pray you help us, Lord, as we find those really good reasons to trust you, that we would stand on the faith that you've given us and help us to be uh, world changers and overcomers in, in all the uh, difficulties and trials of life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you're blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.